0: Hey, folks, thank you for tuning in to Go Black Boy Go. With me, I have a very special guest um, for the episode. Um, Adrian, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, hey, everyone, my name is Adrian Davy. I'm a second-year PhD student in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Ooh. at the University of California, Berkeley. Ooh,
0: um, Science.
1: Yes, science. Thank you for having me, Jalen. I'm really, really excited to be here. We have a lot
0: of things to yeah talk about. I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Thank you. Like, I'm. I'm like really honored to have you. Like, I keep saying. Like, I think you're so funny on on Twitter. <laughs> um. And <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's just been yeah. This yeah. I'm I'm really excited for this. And also like, I don't know a lot of science, folks so i'm really curious to know like like i guess what are your what do you focus on with your research
1: Hey, great question uh so again i'm in the chemical engineering department and my research really sits at the intersection of chemistry physics and material science Mm. Uh, specifically what i do is i build carbon dioxide sensors um so carbon dioxide is a, you know, very common familiar gas that we know about. We associate it with vehicle exhaust, um, carbon dioxide with each XL. So as I'm talking about like carbon dioxide is physically leaving my, like my body through yeah. uh, my breath. Um, and a lot of scientists in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years have seen that carbon dioxide, uh, increasing carbon dioxide concentrations are implicated in human health, um, consequences. So, you know, if you've ever been in a conference room, and say that conference room is uh, poorly ventilated, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of people in that conference room, mm-hmm. within like 30 minutes to an hour, the carbon dioxide concentration, un- unbeknownst to you, could be increasing over time, um, and you could start to feel tired. You could be dizzy. Um, you mm-hmm. could start to cough. If you if you are an asthmatic individual, you may have some, some like mild asthmatic flares. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of these health conditions are under the umbrella of what we call sick building syndrome or SBS. Um, and so what my research is, is I'm using um, what's called meta-organic frameworks, which are porous materials that can selectively um, sense carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, so I'm making these frameworks so that we as humans can, you know, get information about, okay, are the rooms that we're in safe for human occupation? And the way that we detect that is through color. Um, Hmm. So I have agents that that respond to carbon dioxide by changing color. And depending on the color change, we can assign that color change
0: to a concentration of carbon dioxide. Um,
1: Yeah. That's kind of like my research pitch in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, no, this is like, you know, I'm an English girl. So um, that sounds very cool. It sounds very cool and important. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how, Well, I guess. So I, yeah, I, I do want to talk about because like I feel like the humanities is different than than how this how science programs are, and I guess I'm curious to know like, like since starting your program, what's been like your the general atmosphere of like. Uh, uh, being around other graduate students or like right. the professors like what has been and then are like are there um are are you like the only pro- uh black student grad student in Woo. your your program or like yeah I guess I'm curious about that because I know yeah. I'm the only black man in the English department currently right. so um right. and that's um, I mean that that has its pros and cons. <laughs> um, um, So yeah, I guess yeah. What are yeah? I guess yeah. Talk more about what it's like being um a black graduate student in the science department.
1: Sure. Um. So just like with you, I am the only black man in my wow. department. Um, they're also we also have a um, black woman who's Nigerian uh-huh. um, in our department, and it's just the two of us.
0: Uh huh. Um, okay yeah so you still you have you still have somebody uh, and i also have somebody too we have a there's a black woman in in the department too who's my roommate so yeah so it's like yeah it's good to have that support yeah
1: yes she and i have had many a key um together about uh just so many things that we observe in our department interactions that just feel wrong the overall politics of our department yes um the way that diversity inclusion is executed, uh, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I just have so many thoughts on that as a, as a, as an entity, like diversity inclusion. I just I have a lot of issues with it yeah. as a, as an institution. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's interesting um, navigating this space for a multitude of reasons. One of which is I've quite literally encountered people who told me they'd never like interacted with black chemical engineers before Um, people who when we've had conversations about diversity and inclusion and I say, you know, um, like we need to do more than just talk about unconscious bias. And Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I first came to Berkeley, um, we had, we always have an annual town hall and at one of the town halls, they kind of like gave statistics about Student performance and retention in the department, and they just broke it down into basically like white men, women, and then underrepresented minorities. And I was sort of like, where's the intersectional framework here? Mm -hmm. Like, all Mm -hmm. women don't experience like white women are not underrepresented in all of the sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like there's there's levels to this, and like the reaction I got was like, he's shaking the table, you know? He's shaking (laughs) it. (laughs) like he's shaking the table he's shaking the table
0: (laughs) wow wow
1: um so that's just like one instance and i think i'll get into this as we you know talk um,
0: yeah but it's been a it's been a point
1: of frustration um for me and just sort of feeling isolated in a space with people who just like don't understand and then who also want to act as if they understand and they get frustrated when I as a black person tell them that what they're doing is like anti-black way that They're framing problems as anti-black, um, and just dealing with that. So that's definitely like,
0: this is like, yeah. Like I just, for some reason, like I wouldn't ex most, most of the science people that I encounter that are black and that I have met um, usually don't, aren't as vocal about calling out, like, anti-blackness in their programs. Um, and for, for the longest, I always, like, thought that that just wasn't a thing that most science PhDs did because, for some reason, I thought that they weren't concerned with, like, race and, and, and like, intersectionality and those kind of things multiple oppressions, those kind of things. For some reason, I always I always thought that science folks were removed from those things because, like, in the humanities, that's all we, like, talk about, even though, like, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm just, like, hearing your story and how you speak up about those things, I guess with me, I because I feel so isolated and because... I f- like, I don't want to, like, c- attract attention to myself because I already attract attention by coming to class and spitting hot shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I already, like, I already cause attention to myself anyway, so it's, like, always, I feel like I kind of, like, just hide and, like, only talk to certain people that I trust because I don't want that attention and, you know, the the programs are similar where it's, well, I guess univer- universities like this anyway, where it's like all about diversity and inclusion and it's just a bunch of white people talking about diversity and inclusion. And it's like, I would try to be more active about being on those kind of committees and things like that, but it's like, I've seen what it does to other students of color, where it's like, it's already hard to be a student of color in at this university, put on top of that, you're on these, like, diversity initiatives and being asked all like, being like, all of this labor is being asked of you, in addition to all like the work that you're already doing. So it's like, I don't know. I just haven't. I've been. I. I. have been wrestling with that, like seeing things that need to be changed, and not feeling like, or I guess being afraid to to speak up about that. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I. I think. I think everything you just says one hundred percent, like extremely valid, and I think it's a complex difficult situation to be in right you know yeah one thing that i hear people talk about all the time is i came here to get a phd and you know insert discipline and yet i'm expected to overextend myself to do a lot of work that is also psychologically taxing yes. you know like i in my first year uh i was doing some of this work and i was in spaces where there were white men asking me you know can you give me a condensed summary of what oppressions black people face mm. like, like the fact that i'm being asked to do that <laughs> um the fact that i have to lay out my trauma in a way that is digestible Dig- <laughs>
0: <too>. <laughs> yes easily you know I'm and like, yeah and yeah like
1: palatable at the same time because i think a lot of this too is is mask and respectability right so there's also a level of how am I showing up, and how am I addressing these issues? Because depending on how you go about doing things, there are also certain consequences that you could face materially.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And are you teaching at all, or, or like a discussion leader?
1: Yes. Uh, actually, uh, this semester was my first time teaching since I started my PhD. I taught a class called uh, Chemical Introduction to Chemical Engineering Process Analysis, so uh-huh. this would be introductory course that undergraduates take to get uh, immersed in the discipline,
0: mm-hmm. and, uh, and how I was, really enjoyed yeah.
1: the experience. Um, my students had their final exam uh, on Wednesday, so I actually between yesterday and today, I finished up uh, grading the final exams. Mm, so but I think it was, mm. <laughs> it was really nice to get back into teaching. The last time I taught was my senior year at UMBC, so it's been two years, um, but yeah. I really I really enjoy this space and i really enjoy getting to see people learn seeing people get excited about the discipline asking me about research opportunities on campus uh it's it's it's, it's part it's a part of academia that i really treasure even though the rest yeah. of academia i think needs to go oh uh, oh yeah.
0: um no yeah i i totally share your your feelings about teaching you know, like if there's I always, like, complain about teaching because sometimes I get students that are, like, problematic and say problematic things. But usually by the end of the term, they magically, like, stop doing that somehow. Um, but, like, yeah, I just, w- with, like, you know, with teaching during a pandemic, um, I have enjoyed, like, reading their thoughts and, like, engaging with them and... Yeah, that that has been one thing that I have enjoyed about teaching. I don't think I like actually, like, standing in front of a classroom and having a prepared thing. The kind of teaching that I like is, like, I go in and I'm like, okay, what do y'all want to talk about today? We read this. What do y'all want to talk about? And it's just, like, more laid back. Um, And usually students respond very well to that. And so... Yeah, I I don't know, like, since doing this online, I've been able to kind of create the same feeling. Um, And yeah, I guess I'm starting to get used to teaching and therefore I'm starting to like it more. And it, like, yeah, it might make being in academia a little bit more um, manageable, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see all right let's get into some classic shit okay so adrian you picked out a song for us to talk about what is that song yes, i
1: did this song is a a turning point in my young adult life <laughs> uh, this song <laughs> this song was dropped in april of 2009 are you a Nike this- fan you know, let's get into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this song is "Itty Bitty Piggy" by Omika oh, Tanya Mirage. Oh
0: Maraj, my god! Oh my goodness! I I I'm very indifferent to Miss Minaj.
1: I okay, so okay. Let me let me give my thoughts. So before before Nicki Minaj, I think I. I like, I I like, I've always liked music. Like I've always been listening to, um, I I started off really much an R&B person. So I always was listening to Destiny's Child, Mm -hmm. Usher, Aliyah. um, you know, those types of artists. But I think what's so Nikki became really big when I was in, like, as I was finishing middle school, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and there was something to me that was very unapologetic and just Real about her emergence into the industry, and I really liked her the way that we saw her as a rapper and knew that she could spit, but like also the way that she like engaged with her fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the reason why I chose this song is that you know you see those memes on Twitter where somebody says um, if somebody held a gun to your head and said you know you need to recite an entire verse of a song, like. Nicki Minaj was that girl Um, (laughs) like people (laughs) people like knew people knew her verses on every like every every track and I feel like EBD Biggie is one of her signature um, songs Um, now what I will say is that in my fast forwarding to 2020 um, Nicki Minaj has gone through things and I have also matured and changed in you know political perspectives Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's it's difficult sometimes being somebody who, like, fell in love with her artistry a while ago because, you know, in recent times, there's been a lot of um, questionable takes that Nikki has had yes. about various things. And yes. I think for me, as a, I'm a person who's very much like, I can't be out here um, giving, like, support to artists who are who say or do things that could be colorist, anti-black. Um, mm mm-hmm misogynistic, classist, et cetera. And I I believe that nobody's above critique. And so, you know, yes, I chose Itty Bitty Piggy, but, like, Nicki Minaj is not above critique either Uh, And I think sometimes, like, people who become fans, namely the barbs, are just like, you know, do y'all see something when it comes to issues surrounding her that are, I think, valid critiques? I do think that there are times where, you know, Nicki's talked about um, people having this hate train, and I think there certainly have been cases where people have collaborated toward Nikki's demise, but I think there are also some times where Nikki has sort of avoided accountability for Mm. things that she said or done, Mm -hmm. and I think that as a person with the politics that I have, and, like, politics I'm trying to further refine, right, Mm -hmm. like, I can't ignore that, so yeah, that's kind of just where I sit.
0: Hmm. Okay, like, that kind of resolves some some of my feelings about her because um yeah like she has her her music like i i was really really obsessed with pink friday for instance but after that i it just kind of fell off for me and my partner is like a big nicki minaj fan and so he listens to nicki minaj all the like all the time i cannot go a day without hearing her voice um <laughs> um so like I'm slowly starting to like, like, he like just hearing about like how, like, how she is the confidence and things like that. Like, I can get behind that, but like some of the other like questionable things, I'm like, uh, um, but yeah, so what are the lyrics that that we're going to be talking about?
1: Okay, so you just mentioned, I think, a good word, confidence, about, um, in description of Nicki Minaj. Yeah. And so, there's a part of the song, like my favorite part of Itty Bitty Piggy is actually like the end. Um, Nikki and a lot of her her tracks will just be like talking shit at the end of the song. Like it's just a beat playing and she's just talking at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a part that is etched in my brain where she basically says, give it up, it's me, I win, you lose, and then just starts to laugh. just, like, of the the entirety of the song, like, that part has just stayed forever in my association of Nicki Minaj. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's very much um, indicative of how she just entered this industry as a hard-working lyricist and how she continues to let us know, remind us, inform us of her power, of her presence, of her impact. Um, You know, something else I want to just briefly add is that I think two years after the song shot in 2011, Nikki put out her first documentary. And yeah. in that documentary, she talked about uh, um, being a boss and like got into the gendered aspect of it and said, you know, if, if Little Wayne says, um, I want this done, I need y'all to do this, he's being a boss. But if I do it, I'm being a bitch. And she talks about having high expectations for herself and pushing her pen and, um, you know, refusing to acquiesce to people who say, okay, you know, as a Black woman in, in, in the music industry, you need to show up this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just also something about her as well that is powerful to me and that Nikki is very, Nikki's not afraid to let people know, like, I deserve to be in this space. I've been, I, I'm, I'm out here actually putting thought into my art you know, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to treat myself as somebody who's inferior or subservient. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. So, that's just always been so much inspirational to
0: me. Yeah, it's just, like, this, uh, yeah, just owning it, and, like, yeah, just, like I said, just exuding that confidence, not giving a fuck, like, just, yeah, I, I get behind that. Um, I get i guess for me I guess i'm not used to seeing that and i I guess i I guess it's like I guess I sh- i'm not used to seeing that from a, a black female artist because maybe I'm not exposed i haven't been exposed to a lot like growing up or whatnot um so yeah I, I guess I guess it's like me trying to unlearn like like you said earlier like that kind of like black respectable image me trying to unlearn those things in order to see like you know oh like Nicki Minaj like saying fuck you to everybody like that there is no way there is no one way for her to like she doesn't have to be put into a box she doesn't have to be this like meek woman who respect like she can just be a boss and you will respect her because of that and it's like yeah i guess that's just like new for me to see and i guess that's why i struggle (laughs) there's one that that that's like one piece of why i struggle with her sometimes um but yeah like kind of like hearing more about like what you think about her um and what my partner thinks about like yeah i just Slow and slowly, I, I, I find myself like listening to her music, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I, I can't let him know I'm listening to this because then he's going to rub it in my face. <laughs> Nachi being
1: Squidward when he found out about how good the Krabby Patties were on SpongeBob. Like, you know, having them a secret.
0: <laughs> you know what? my I, I get called Squidward. That's one of my nicknames. So um, I think it's yeah. very on brand. <laughs> All right. That has been some classic shit. Let's move on into, uh, you know, a topic that we might spend some time on. <laughs> um, ready. Graduate student unions. Um. So, I guess, I guess we can start this by talking about what's currently going on on your side, um, with cola. Um, and so I guess, uh, what could you explain? What is COLA? What, and then what's the kind of like mission and what are some of the things that they're doing for graduate students?
1: Sure. Um, so I think I'll probably, I want to kind of give a timeline as well as I uh, illustrate what the movement is. Uh, so COLA is a an acronym that stands for cost of living um, adjustment and we usually call it COLA for all um, so cost of living adjustment for all Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's an intersectional movement that has several aims Um, one of the aims is getting graduate students out of rent burden Uh, and rent burden is basically defined as if you as a graduate student if 30% or more of your income goes towards rent right so it goes towards Mm -hmm. your living in
0: California yeah,
1: and, uh, and it's what's,
0: expensive-ass California.
1: Right, and what's insane about it is that, and I was actually going to kind of dovetail this with uh, discrepancies, I think, with, not discrepancies, but differences between uh, uh, sort of compensation for folks in STEM versus folks in mm-hmm. uh, non-STEM disciplines. Mm-hmm. It was wild to me when I found out how many people are like 80% or more ret virgin uh who aren't in STEM and even those of us in STEM are rent burdened so you know up until teaching like my first year and a half like I when I did my when I put my uh you know annual income into the rent burden calculator like I'm like 47 percent rent burdened myself Mm. Um, and so that was something I was putting into perspective thinking you know This is insane. Like we're people who do tremendous labor labor on behalf of this institution, UC Mm -hmm. Berkeley, the Mm -hmm. University of California system. And yet we can barely afford to live here. Yeah. Uh, So that's kind of one one big aspect of it. Um, The other thing has been uh, there have been calls for police militarization. And so, yes, um, there's been arrests of, you know, cola organizers. Um, some colour organizers uh, namely those who are undocumented have faced threats of deportation. Um, and this kind of also dovetails with the third part, which is no retaliation, right? So like retaliation has come in, in terms of, uh, threats, threatening of deportation. Um, you know, graduate students were fired. 82 graduate students were fired at the university of California, Santa Cruz, Mm. um, you know, and and of those graduate students, um, the institution has also threatened to not reappoint them in the future wow. uh, for other um, appointments. And you know, when you're in a department where your income comes from teaching, mm-hmm. if that's barred, right? Like
0: you, yeah, you have
1: no money. Yeah, uh, and getting a PhD is already it's a job in itself, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to, to just kind of, I'm going to try to give a very um, condensed timeline that still holds integrity to the movement. Um, so um, I, w- I want to preface this with Ola is, it's, we're, we're in a very interesting space right now because there's a lot of different organizing uh, happening and a lot of coinciding movements. There's Monster Housing, there's People's Breakfast Oakland, and when you look at the historical context of the UC system, with each decade, there's been various movements that have kind of led to what we're seeing now with COLA. Um, and so, COLA really uh, like to the, to, the, to the visibility that we see now, um, I kind of will just start with like early November, early December. Um, this is where students at UCSC um, started sending mass emails to um, campus administration, letting them know that their rent burden demanding cola. Mm-hmm. Um, they started They started the strike by December. Uh, in December, um, they're on the quarter system, so they resolved to withhold all quarter grades as um, sort of a bargaining chip with mm-hmm. the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, as we segue into 2020, look, looking at January and February, this is where things get really spicy. Um, and so the strike continues through January. By February, the TAs who are striking get written warnings from the institution about, you know, we know that y'all haven't submitted these grades, you just submit these grades or else. Um, Janet Napolitano, who is the president of the UC system, gave them specifically a February 21st deadline. Um, we also have a workers' union called the UAW. Um, 2865. In February, they started to file an unfair labor practice, ULP. Um, The UC did not meet with the union um, like they said that they would to negotiate a COLA. Um, And that's kind of something that's ongoing. By the end of February, February 28th, um, 82 TAs at UCSC were fired. Mm. Um, And around that time, that's when solidarity across the UCs uh, really, you know, grew. So, Uh, Berkeley by March 16th, we had acquired 10 plus uh, departments that declared themselves strike ready. And so as a graduate student body, um, we started to strike. Um, Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, the way that the strike is manifested um, hasn't been necessarily ideal. Um, And with that being said, by the end of April, UCSC students submitted both fall and winter grades that they were withholding, um, namely due to the pandemic, the fact that they couldn't organize the picket lines rallies, as well as the fact that um, the Committee on Education Policy um, said that those grades, they were just gonna kind of enter them as passes. Um, and they didn't want to the graduate students didn't want to burden undergraduates anymore was sort of what was going on. Yeah. And so now we've transitioned from this grading strike to this um, unfair labor practice in which um, through this unfair labor practice, we're demanding that students, are, you know, make $40,000 a year. Um, you know, we're, we're really trying to define what, what a COLA would look like in terms of graduate students being able to be compensated and not have to worry about. About food scarcity, housing scarcity yeah. to obtain a PhD. So that's
0: kind of yeah, in a yeah. I think it's a very important movement, and yeah, like we as students, we as graduate students shouldn't have to worry about like how we're gonna pay rent, how we're gonna eat, while also being stressed out about assignments and exams. And yeah, it's yeah, I yeah, I fully support everything going on with that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear more of a detailed outline or detailed history about, um, kind of like the steps in the movement. Um, so I, after all of, you know, the, that I, I want to move into talking about something, um, that I've kind of seen with, graduate unions like they're they're like they're very great for us as graduate students. They're very helpful. Um but there there are some issues within them. And you know I, I wanna hold space for criticism. Um mm-hmm. so yeah how do we uh navigate supporting the causes of the union while also holding their lack of protection measures for people of color, um, graduate students of color, accountable in a way that still protects us. So that I guess that's a question that I'm putting out there for you, um, and just to get the conversation started. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think I think this is the big question, right? Um...
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I will say that for me, since coming to California, I think that my politics have become, like, tremendously more radicalized. And with yeah. that being said, I view the worker, the workers' union, I'll, I'll localize it to Berkeley for right now. Um, I question their framing, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: in, in, in looking at the cost of living adjustment for all movement, a lot of people uh, view this as – the class issue only and don't look at the Other, racialized, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, gendered um, for those who are differently abled, you know, like how mm-hmm. these all sort of are interacting right in, into a series of oppressions that people are experiencing. Yes. Um, and so, and know, then just, okay. About...
0: Just the thing with the class stuff, like it, I guess I'm a little bitter about it because most of the time when people like when like you know the hardcore Marxists, like they're usually like not poor so it's like where where is this where is this coming from this whole like rally behind like class and 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 like this whole like kind of like poor person performance but it's like your your parents are paying for you to go to graduate school
1: it's and I love you made that distinction and made that a point because Black folks here in Berkeley we have a we have a we talk a lot about the performative um, performative allyship just the performances in general that we observe and one thing that we kind of talk about is the idea of how, how White Berkeley loves to loves to uh, posture. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's a lot of posturing. I think there's a lot of let me let me gain intellectual capital by being in these spaces, Mm -hmm. by saying these, using this jargon, saying these words, but having no real investment. Um, And I think also something that I've noticed is that when you're when your framing is just a class issue. Right. I think it's often safe for you as a person who may belong to an oppressor class. Right. To. Right. yeah. Yeah, I'll have all of that addressed especially if you are white, if you are a man, if you are um, you know cisgender heterosexual, you know like I think people can people and even with Cola what I've observed is as we sort of explain this to some students in stem who otherwise wouldn't really I shouldn't say wouldn't care but whose framing often is lacking I think that folks can say, oh my gosh, yes, I would love to make more money but then when it comes down to we need to get police off campus, it's privilege. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's just on period.
0: <laughs> yeah. What? And it's like it's like again, this is another situation. At least here at Oregon, it's like that. This is another situation where it's like I would like to speak up about that. I would like to address, you know, the fact that you know the union wants to go and disrupt. Wants to go in in, near this the student union and like, just cause commotion, disrupt, cause attention to the cause, which I I get, but it's like when when pe when black people get out there and when brown people get out there, the the same like there's no assurance that we're going to be protected and i don't think i think that there's a disconnect in them even trying to like see that the fact that police will view our existence as more like hyper visible in that situation and so i think and i don't know it's just like again i would i would talk about that and i would address it but it's like i feel like it should be obvious (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know, it's just, it's just frustrating.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, as, as we're in this COVID-19 era, and as we're thinking about public health disparities as well, because public health is also something that pertains to graduate students needing access to, um, you know, safe care. Mm-hmm. We have graduate students who have, you know, people like even want, needing to... Um, see therapists right you know like that's 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 things that we should be able to have provided upon us um, and so something that I want to say too that's really been intriguing to, to me is situating the Kola movement in sort of larger larger issues as we look at what's going on with the western world western society mm-hmm. right when we think about being in a country in a, in a community that champions capitalism as a solution for everything you know saying well you know if you just have a dream and you work hard you'll be able to earn all this money and accomplish everything that you want and we all know that that's the minute, like that's yes. not true yes. um, yeah. we know that there's been historically racialized barriers to even mortgages mm-hmm. to emerging into suburban communities to choosing schools that are um, you know beneficial for people and I think something that as I've really had to reckon with is, you know, why aren't these things just naturally provided, right? So by virtue of me being a human, why do I not have housing? Why do I not have access to premium health care? Why mm. do I not have access to food? And I think that this movement has also made me realize how many things we we expect hardship for, right? Like mm. there are people in my department when we talked about cola saying, I don't understand, like when we came to California, we knew what we were getting into. Like this place is expensive. What are we doing? And it's just like, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why are we, why are we accepting and capitulating to the idea of struggle? Like Mm. struggle does not need to need to happen. And Mm. I think that oftentimes struggle is communicated as necessary for growth or necessary for achieving some goal. And I think that that is also um, just unwarranted. Yeah.
0: I, I like yeah I like what you said struggle does not need to happen because yeah I guess we get conditioned into thinking that like yeah that struggle is a part of the journey and yeah it for for many people <laughs> um struggle is 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 not the struggle is not real so um yeah yeah I I, I like that and I yeah I totally agree with that um yeah. Do uh, just real quick, uh, could you give uh contact info for Kola if you have it, or I could just put it in the show notes.
1: Sure. Uh, so for the there are two things I'll give. So there's um, there's Strike University. Uh, I can give you a, a better uh hyperlink. I want to say right now it's just strikeuniversity.com, but okay. Strike University is a political education space that we're using to share different teach-ins that are happening um i was very excited i gave a teach-in with graduate students in ethnic studies computer science education and Mm. physics last wednesday see you're Um, you're
0: you're um, you're more cultured than most of the science people i've met (laughs) like you you actually like go you actually branch out so i think that's yeah that's 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 new for me yeah
1: (laughs) thank you um We uh, we spoke about pro Indigenous STEM reimagination. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, we talked about we talked about the historical harms that Western Westernized science has done,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, namely to Black and Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about uh, attempts to reimagine how Westernized science can change um, to be beneficial to people through weaving Indigenous modes of knowing. Wow! Um, I think we. T- we talked a lot about how in westernized science there's this idea of, you know, a universal truth or this is how things are. Yeah. Uh, how, you know, white men from Western Europe um, engaged in what's called epistemicide, so an erasure of indigenous principles, indigenous ways of knowing. Uh-huh. Um, so it was a really it was a really it was a really engaging teacher. We had forty four yeah. people. Yeah, um, that sounds amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I guess I'll plug is uh, pay us more uh, ucb.com. So that is the we, we're called Calcola or Berkeley Cola that is our website. So again, it's uh,
0: pay us more and then ucb.com. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you for all of that. And yeah, it just sounds like, yeah, it just sounds like some great stuff happening your way. Um, you're really changing my idea about how science majors are or science folks are. I, you know, you know, we English folks don't really like you guys. So, um, you're you know,
1: really... <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have thoughts about us too, but <laughs> maybe we can, maybe this can be a part two. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. That'll yeah, that can be a different <laughs> show. <laughs> um, let's move into the segment I call what I've been seeing. Um, this is like my pop culture segment. And for this segment you have, um, you want to discuss, the book all boys aren't blue by george m johnson so i guess tell me a bit about your experience reading it and yeah i guess your general thoughts about it
1: yeah so uh firstly george m johnson is one of my favorite people yeah follow on twitter instagram and other social media outlets um he's amazing george (laughs) george writes in a way that I feel is very authentic and incorporates very important frameworks that kind of situate uh, intersections of blackness and queerness that I think are often not not part of public discourse in a way that's very widely visible to the everyday person. Um, George also is on Uh, Regularly appears on or occasionally appears on The Grapevine, which I watch a lot on YouTube, which is black folks coming together talking about current events. Yeah. Um, George always has amazing takes that I'm just like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I wish I could show this cover because I have this book with me right now. Um, All Boys Aren't Blue is a, George calls it a memoir manifesto. Um, it's a memoir in the sense that George is recounting pieces of life that has, that that speaks to, again, this intersection of blackness and queerness, you know, there's discussions of black masculinity, mm-hmm. there's discussions of, you know, purchase into this masculinity. So George talks about, uh, you know, playing double dutch with girls in, um, you know, elementary middle school, and then george starts to play football with the boys and realizes that through playing football you know george is good at it but george also talks about sort of a level of safety that comes in that Mm. Um, and you know what's what's really what i love that george does in this book is george talks about george talks about like the the visible queerness like already that was in um you know his family and george talks about how you know there's often this narrative that black like the black community is just um, like like innately intrinsically homophobic yeah. and, queerphobic. Yeah. and um i really just love how he deconstructs that in a way where he you know acknowledges that um you know like yes there is yes there is we like all communities have and it doesn't justify it but it's like all communities have these issues of um you know queer phobia and we're each day acquiring the tools to address that but you know I think a lot of times there's been even when we think about um I remember in this election season seeing people say like oh black people don't like Pete Buttigieg because he's gay and <laughs> like literally making that a talking point and i just
0: no he's a boring like, white man
1: <laughs> right like <laughs> oh black people are just homophobic so and i think that's very yeah. dangerous uh, um very dangerous rhetoric to put out there yeah um, yeah. especially when you when you aren't a black person and you're like operating through the white gaze speaking on behalf of black yeah people. um yeah but um i want to say too i really like this title so all boys aren't blue um george talks about there's a lot of gendered language right and we think about george talks about um when he was born uh you know and like the idea of birth and how like blue is associated with being a boy yeah and how throughout his upbringing right people kind of read him as not a boy because he didn't do things that were associated with boyhood um Mm -hmm. you know george was very close with his grandmother um who he calls nanny um you know he he regards nanny as a friend because george said you know like he had he had associations with people growing up but he didn't have like a group of people who he just called his crew and so he found that in his grandmother um and i i think what i really appreciate about this book is that i felt very seen in the sense of um like throughout my life i think that i also had the purchase in the sense of like i played sports and i um you know i'm i'm tall and so like i i i present like certain i present masculinity yeah based on physique yeah yeah um in terms of my interests right like when i would come home from school i was a person who was like drawing in my notebook i was a person who's writing poetry i'm a person like i said listening to beyonce um A person who liked to dance, Um, a person who would sit with my mom and just sit and talk to my mom. Um, You know, things that people may consider like softer or feminine. Um, and, And I just really like how George makes space for that. And I think also. You know. before I mentioned it being kind of this dual memoir manifesto with it being a manifesto George has talked about an interview sort of this being a call to action for people Mm -hmm. Um, you know a call to action for um, black queer people to feel free to be ourselves um, to to um, live our lives the way that we live them um, you know and And also for, you know, he he talks a lot about the Wade family um, in interviews and talks about how, you know, this book, the work that George does, has also empowered parents of queer children to learn how to navigate that and how to be be beneficial people for their queer children. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you hear a lot of times like, oh my gosh, like, how does a child at 10 years old how do they know that they're queer or that they identify as transgender and i think yeah. there's issues with divorcing right like gender expression gender identity sexuality i think mm. people Ooh. interchange all of those terms when come
0: through practicing. come through with the distinctions okay. <laughs> <laughs> distinctions so, yes um,
1: this is one of my favorite books that i've read
0: yeah no it it um, sounds like, yeah it sounds like a great it sounds like it would be life-changing to read um yeah what would you say that it was like life-changing to read
1: it was yeah it, it was and it's um like i said just the it, it's it's very rare that i read a book and feel seen, feel seen. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so um i just felt like i felt dragged in parts of the book i also uh <laughs> i felt i laughed as i read it i also um there are also parts of it that are like really, really, really dark and really, you know, I, I was, I was really proud that George felt, um, you know, confident, was open to be this transparent and be this candid about certain things that he's experienced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a really comprehensive read that I just highly recommend that everybody gets this book, supports George and Johnson, and, you know, yeah, really forward to the work that he's
0: going to the amazing work he's going to continue to produce yeah I yeah i always love reading stuff by black queer people but especially i've been trying to find more black men to read where it's like that i'm not gonna get like this homophobic misogynist black man like it's it's one that's yeah, I, I, I guess I've been trying to find more things to read that will make me feel like I'm not alone. Um, and yeah, so um, so All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that recommendation. Um, now, we th- this has been fun. Now we come to the end of the show where we talk about the, the end of the show that I like to call I'm so done. And this is basically where we just talk about what annoyed us for the week. Um. So I'll let you go first, Adrian. What, what, what are you so done with this week?
1: What am I so done with this week? Um, there are two things that I'm so done with this week that I've been done with for, I would say two months now.
0: Um,
1: one of them being the, the, infantilizing language being used towards black people as it pertains to us dying disproportionately from Mm COVID-19. I think it's there's been a lot of media coverage Mm -hmm. um, one of which came from the Surgeon General that made it seem as though black people uh, are not are not taking the necessary precautions we need to take to avoid death. Um, and there's been statements such as, you know, there's diabetes and hypertension and other medical ailments going on. So y'all need to do this. Y'all need to stay your black asses inside. Without any acknowledgement of how these health complications arise, mm-hmm. as well as the fact that, you know, this the, the entire COVID-19 era has been, we as individuals needing to be responsible for ourselves and there's been no sort of nationalized federal protections, um, you know, getting COVID-19 diagnostic tested. Um, I think furthermore, the the rhetoric surrounding what's going on with black folks harkens back to this idea of us being these like like innately diseased type of people, people who are just like biologically essentially prone to prone to, to despair and disease. Yeah, and I think that that's very problematic. That's a problematic discourse uh-huh. to disseminate from the, like, the, the federal seat of government. Um, so that's something that I have just a lot of thoughts about, especially also because it's so, the US Surgeon General is a black man. Yeah, um, I
0: was gonna say, yeah, you know.
1: <laughs> yes, <clears throat> um, but we can- we Conveniently, can
0: black, he's a conveniently right. a black man. <laughs>
1: Right, and it was very strategic that they chose him to be the person to disperse that anti-black rhetoric. Yes. Um, yes. So that's one thing, and then the other thing I would love to get your thoughts on are so this this hashtag vote blue no matter who. So this like voting, this federal voting kind of situation that we're in right now, which we have
0: we still gotta vote. <laughs> Uh, Joe Biden as the Democratic frontrunner,
1: and Donald J. Trump as the Wu child, anyways. Uh, um, uh-huh. <laughs> so, I am like I said. This is. I'll. I'll, I'll reiterate again. I think. In the last almost two years of being in California, my understanding of just the United States as a project has just vastly evolved. As a project,
0: ooh, that's key. And
1: I I say that because you know I think I think we're conditioned to think that these you know of these political parties you know Republicans favor white people and Democrats favor black people. Democrats have more black. These, more visible black politicians uh-huh. um and even though the change is incremental it's still change um and i'm so glad that i've been surrounded with people who have helped me break all of that down because i personally don't think that either party really is interested in manifesting revolutionary change no i also think that um when I when I see people with blue checks on Twitter telling survivors of, of sexual assault that we kind of just need to put this aside just to get Trump out of office and framing like our inspired moving forward as just removing Donald Trump, he's like the final boss of the video game that we just need to defeat. To get exactly, to get it's a know? game.
0: It's a game. It's a
1: game. It's yeah. literally a game. Yeah. And so it's just frustrating to me that we have we have this discord happening. We have Joe Biden, somebody who was also implicated in um, heightened policing, anti-black legislation, three strikes, you know, the fact that it's was just like, okay, well, we can't worry about all that right now. You want Donald Trump back. And it's like, I don't want any of these people back. I don't, I honestly don't want us abiding by systems that were began when black people were viewed as three-fifths of a person, right? the united states was never interested in our liberation and never will be and so mm-hmm. that's why for me i guess kind of it's difficult for me to view american electoral politics as liberatory or as uh,
0: you s- repeat the last part uh, what did you say what, what did you say uh what did you what was the last thing you said
1: oh the last thing i'm saying is that it was dif- it's difficult for me to view American electoral politics as liberatory hmm. um, I you know when, we, when, when I think about the foundation of this country when I think about the issues that are framed in this country it's 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 almost as this you know the United States is this exceptional pristine entity that has these issues that we kind of can just clean up. But we can just keep moving on the way that we're moving and not realizing that the united states since its inception since its birth was always like this this entity that was going to do harm that engages mm. in white settler colonialism that oppresses people within and beyond the conflict like the, the the geographical confines of this of this concept or continental united states mm. uh so I guess I I guess I would really love to hear your thoughts because I've I've spoken to a lot of people who have issues with folks who um have reservations about voting mm. and I'm open to I'm open to, to various sides because I understand where people are coming from but yeah I'll just say that so I'm, I'm interested
0: yeah it's like I have a lot of thoughts um I'm very like just like. I'm indifferent to Nicki Minaj. My indifference translates to the situations we're put into when we have to choose between, quote unquote, the, what do they say, the lesser of two evils? Right. Um. I just think that's such an impossible situation for people to be put in. And it's not a, it, that choice is not, that choice is not democratic. <laughs> at all. Um and so like I just really I find the I find this the situation that we're put into where we have to vote on candidates is just like or the candidates that aren't fit or don't need to be representing America. Um well maybe they do need to represent America because maybe America is wants to portray itself as how it's looking. Um, I don't know. It's just like, I don't even know if I, I don't even know if I can give you a straightforward answer because I, lately I've been really like divested from trying to figure out what's going on politically because our president is so fucking stupid and like other politicians feed into it. And other, like, people get so wrapped up in, in these kind of, like, politics and, and making certain statements, campaigning, for supporting certain candidates. And it's just, like, I just want to, like, be able to walk down the street without feeling like I'm going to get murdered or that I'm going like, to, I, I, like, I just want to be able to, like, live. And like not have that sort of like fear because like with I'm on a tangent now, but like with you know the Ahmad Arbery stuff going on and then there was like another killing. Taylor. Yeah, yeah, that just happened Say the name again.
1: Rihanna? Yeah, yeah. Rihanna yeah.
0: Just with with that going on as well. It's just like that stuff really gets to me because it's like, well damn, you can't like You can barely, like, breathe without being considered a threat. So it's, like, that. that's what I'm really, like, stuck on now. And so, like, to try to think about, like, the fact that people are just saying, vote blue. (laughs) It's just, it's just, not only is it frustrating, it's just very, it just very, it just really, really gets me down. So I, I guess my... I guess my method is to ignore it. I know that's not the most helpful, but I think that right now, I think that's the best way I can protect myself because there is so much shit going on, and America is a fucking circus, and like, yeah, it's just, I, I don't, I don't even think I answered your question. No, you did. <laughs> you did. You did. You did. Um. That's what you did. Yeah, I just, yeah, I think that's the, I think for me, it is, is, like, protecting myself, protecting my mental well-being, and then, you know, when it's time to, I don't even get why we're still having an election, because, like, people aren't campaigning right now, or are they? Are they doing, like, videos or something? Um,
1: there's, yeah, there's, people are sending out videos, and people are going on The View, and... Making the, really the new no. statements,
0: but... Interesting, yeah. but see that that but that again, it's like this. Even even in a pandemic, you know, the, the it's it's like the show has to go on. Yes, right. like, the show's yes, right. yes, and that's what I yeah. It's like American politics is nothing but a show, and it's like how how do you how do you make sense of. The, like, the candidates, how do you make sense of trying to vote when it's all a show? And whatever, like, someone's going to get named president, and we're just going to have to deal with it. And yeah, I'm get. I I'm just very pessimistic about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I love that you, I, I want to say this, I love that you made space to candidly say that, because... The vote blue, no matter who, crowd is not even allowing people to voice that pessimism. I'm oh. on the same boat with you. I, I don't think Trump or Biden being president is going to affect the change that I want to see. I think, I
0: think that I don't. I don't think that the American. I don't think that a president can do that. I don't think
1: exactly. Right,
0: right. Um, I don't think that the, it's what
1: are the what are the what are the investments, right? Yeah, of, of the American, of the of the United States, right? Yeah. What are, what are the belief systems that we subscribe to? And they're like I said, capitalism, anti-Blackness, mm-hmm. colonialism, imperialism. Mm-hmm. Like whoever occupies that seat will continue to uh, maintain the system. House. yeah, right,
0: um, yeah, but.
1: I want to add lastly that I think um, what's really been egregious in my mind is how we've been talking about framing I think a lot in this podcast and I think that that's really important and essential and when I look at the Democratic Party as well I think what really bothers me is this performativeness that comes out of the frame Mm -hmm. that the Democratic Party uses to discuss racism Um, and so talking about what's going on with Breonna Taylor, Ahmad Arbery. When we think about the Trayvon Martins, all of these horrific incidents, anti black incidents that have happened in our lifetime, right? This party talks about it as as a talks about racism as this sort of like interpersonal vermin, right? This this like this this mentality that person that person has. You hear people say racism is hot, mm-hmm. Um and you know it's it's just poor framing because racism is something that like we're literally emerged into it's everywhere. It's part of every discussion. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's structural and systemic. Um, and I, I think part of my disillusionment is, you know, talking to people who identify as the, the, the democratic, like progressive, right. The, the democratic centrist. Um, these are people who, again, like I said, are framing Trump as this stain on the pristine American, uh, you know, uh, character. And these are also people who don't like quite literally cannot either quite literally cannot understand or understand or actively acting against, right. The, the notion of what America represents and what America is, um, and again, as you mentioned, these are people who want to make incremental changes of doing things like, um, yeah, maybe we'll arrest people who are shooting black people. Maybe we'll, uh, um, like, build a gym or you know, minor things that aren't aren't what we want as a community, but expect us to be grateful and shut our asses up. Um, and so. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think I think in that disillusionment, it's just gonna be really difficult for me to 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 be excited about what politicians of the United States do in the like now or in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And then I guess, I mean, yeah, we're we're just kind of on this on this tangent now, but it's still related to what we're done with. Um, I guess for me, like something that I've started to see, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's I don't know if it's all already always been this way um but the um debates they're they're just entertainment like you really don't get any information it's just now at least with the most recent ones it's asking questions that come from hashtags on Twitter and just reacting to it and there's no I, I When I was watching, when I tried to watch them, I found that I just got angry. I didn't get any information. It just incited anger and fear. And it's like, that's when I that's when I started shutting off because I was like, okay, like, this isn't helpful at all.
1: It's, a, it's literally a distraction. It's like literally, it's literally not censoring, right? Actual items, censoring uh, actual problems, censoring... It's just, again, this Democrats versus Republicans. Every day we're getting updates about ridiculous things that Trump is doing or saying. Um, things that aren't conducive at all, right? So what we want as a public
0: um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's...
1: I, I agree.
0: Yeah. Okay, so moving into... So I, w- I am so totally done with American politics. That's one of them. Um, and then I guess I want to briefly mention... Um you know, this, what I've seen in this week's edition of Karen's Gone Wild. Um, I don't know if, if you've seen the video of this white woman at Red Lobster, like... I have seen it. Okay, and like, hitting the worker, and then the worker, like, hitting her back, and just everyone trying to pull her off. And then it's just like, you know, the people were saying, you know, we waited three hours for food. Okay, wait, let me back up. First of all, this, pe- the audience... I'm going to call them the audience. The audience didn't say anything when, you know, this white woman was yelling at this, this black woman worker. But as soon as this black woman defends herself, then people are saying, oh, don't pull her hair, blah, blah, blah. But it's like... Yeah where was the where was the where was the action then? And then it's like they were mad about waiting for their food for three hours, but it's like, why don't you go cook something from all those cans of food you you got and all all that meat you got stuck stacked up in your freezer? All of that stuff you done went to the grocery stores and just bought up. It's just like I I really don't get it. It's like as soon as people heard that these places were going to start opening up for takeout they just had to go get served but it's like you <laughs> there were there were like times where the grocery store did not have food and it was from people like that who just are just greedy and don't care about other people's well-being and so it's just like it's really interesting to see that the same kinds of people that you know store food, but they can't cook because all they got is salt and pepper in the, in the cabinet. Um, to, in be, I, yeah. It's just annoying. It's just like, why, why, like why be this way? And why don't you just stay your ass home? Because
1: you know what? I, I want to add that. I think, this is madness because whiteness is madness. Oh. So, well, oh. when you think about, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, um, <laughs> when you when you think about the fact that there are people across the country doing these hired ass protests where people, white people are holding up signs, <sighs> analogizing what's going on to slavery, right? Uh, v- yes, um, yes. Like, like, demanding, going to these places that are understaffed, demanding to be served, not not taking these precautions, not taking these COVID-19 precautions, like, at, at all, all at not all. wearing masks, which is why I think, as like I said, it's really terrible that this being framed as Black people are the ones who don't know what's going on, or the perpetrators of, mm. um, you know, we're self-sabotaging, we're dying because we're just not,
0: you know, like, that. that's just not true, um, and again, anti-Black, um, and like I said, there's something that's just very entrenched in white womanhood. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it empowers that woman to approach a black woman who's working at a restaurant in the way that she did. Yes. And expected zero pushback, right? Um and 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 Long, didn't really. I mean they were right. they were defending her. The the people that were watching were defending her. Right. Um Yeah, I always say this. White women are the biggest thugs in America. Racist white women are the biggest thugs in America. I'm 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 now using that word for a racist white woman.
1: And it's 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 crazy because I think there was a there was a term that developed on Twitter maybe last last year. I don't know if it was the summer or the fall, but it was Blanco femphobia, which was a hatred of white women. <laughs> and I just I still laugh because it's laughable as a as a as an idea as a politic like.
0: Blanco. Fem phobia.
1: <laughs> A collective oppression against white women, like, make it make sense. Because, I mean,
0: like, you can't make it make sense. It, yeah, I just, I really, like, yeah, that's when I just had to close Twitter because I'm like, I really don't understand how people have these thoughts. But, you know, they do. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I had something else to say. Like, yeah, I guess, I guess with, I'm trying to, like, wrap it back up. I guess with, like, this impulse that America and Americans have to, like, blame Black people for everything, it's just, like, there is no uh, amount of accountability, and that's something that I think many white people don't get taught or, like, feel they have to exude is accountability it's just, I mean, it, yeah, it, it comes from the privilege, and it comes from, yeah. Well, I guess that's it. It comes from the privilege of 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 whiteness and the madness, like you say. Um, and yeah, there's really no way to reason with it. <laughs>
1: I think, I think also, right? We 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 are in an era. So I think one thing that I found out when I came to California is that. UC Berkeley has fewer than I think our amount of black undergraduates as a whole is like 1.9%. And mm. that's just like everyone you like, when you break it down by STEM, by mm. humanities, you know, it's even, you just don't even want to look at the statistics. Right. And the reason for that is that in the late nineties, the UC Berkeley ratified this anti-affirmative action legislation, similar legislation has had been ratified around the same time in other states like Maryland. Um, and I think the United States deludes itself with this post-racial mm. uh, society where, mm. you know, folks think that, oh, we have Barack Obama, so therefore whatever issues black people are facing, it's by choice, mm-hmm. right? Like, y'all can, y'all can pull, up, pull up yourselves by your bootstraps even though you don't have shoes and mm. get into the spaces you need to be in. Get the assets, get the resources, get the connections, but y'all, your lazy ass is just choosing not to do it. You mm-hmm. know, there's all these these framings of the welfare queen, the black woman just mm-hmm. having no ambition, no motivation, just wanting money um, to have. Um, there's demonization of socialism, right? People liking it to just being lazy, and you know, you should work for everything you have. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't just have certain amenities, or you shouldn't. the The, the government should not provide things to the people, and I think being in this covid-19 era i think this now has people questioning their economic knowledge of what these like systems need um but i think yeah going back to your point i think again it's an issue of how we frame the issue i think that again racism is framed as this uh you know interpersonal conflict where you just think oh i don't like you because of the color of your skin and it's not that like it's deeper than that there's there's still Underlying histories that are still being manifested, you know that scholars are doing that. People are having discussion about that. Colors, how racism is the lifeblood of this country. Yes. Um, how? Yes. You know the structures that we have exist because of the racialized caste systems, the racialized stratifications that we made, and how those then intersect with class and gender, etc. But I think that you know when you have a public school system that does not address that that talks about um slavery as just like a oop like a mistake that we made um yeah. that talks about indigenous people as if you know yeah we just you know white people came as pilgrims and had a, had a barbecue that kicked back with indigenous people and then they just died right like the framing is terrible um but i think that to to shift the framing to what we know is reality right that requires a level again of accountability and culpability yes of, the the white American that white Americans are not willing to reconcile because white people have issues with accountability and we know this is fact.
0: I think we can end it there (laughs) (laughs) I think we can end it there because this this particular strain of thought like there's so much in it and there's so many things that it applies to and there's so many there's so many ways that we live it as as black people and and how other people of color live it and see that and have to deal with it um yeah it, it, we could go on for for hours about that so for the sake of time um Adrian thank you so much for coming on like this was like great just hearing you talk about stuff like <laughs> thank
1: you for having me. I'm really honored to get to do this and thank you for making this platform. I I you know when I when you explained it to me, I was smiling. I was very excited. I think that um you know as black men it's really important that we have community um for those of us who, you know, are especially especially the fact that there's a black queer censoring right Right, of this podcast, yeah. I really, really
0: respect you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, thank you for yeah, thank you for affirming me. Like that, I really appreciate that because I get hard on myself about this sometimes. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Go Black Boy Go, and you can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean, and you can follow Adrian on Twitter at.
1: Fresh Fred Kid is my handle. So, fresh, like the fruit at the grocery store. Um, Fred, F R E D, and then Kid K I D. Um, if you go to my account, it should say Adrian K Davey, Cola for All. Um, yeah, so follow me. Appreciate it, y'all.
0: Yeah, and once again, thank you for coming on and thank you guys for listening. See you next time.
1: This is madness because whiteness is madness. Oh, so.